this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of The Jay Allen Show. We are coming to you live from the Safety FM studios. Hopefully you are off to a fantastic start this week and everything is moving and grooving the way that you want it to. So thank you for everyone who's come out. Take a listen to what the heck we have going on here. I'm going to tell you today we're going to go down a totally different path than what we normally do. And we're going to have a conversation today that's more than just about safety that it's more than just about a human being, that it is more than what your standard conversation is. So today I have the opportunity of speaking to Stephen Tybee. For more than 25 years, Stephen Taibbi was a producer, director, and director of photography for Stephen G. Taibbi Productions, a television production company, and a contributing editor at Videography Magazine for 10 years. He also wrote articles for multiple magazines. He's written television scripts, TV and radio commercials, and was a lyricist for a songwriting team. He went on to be the Vice President of Transplant Speakers International and is now a public speaker and a photographer. Stephen Taibbi is also an author and he is definitely a walking miracle. And that's where our conversation is going to focus on today. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Stephen Taibbi on The Jay Allen Show. Safety FM. Changing safety cultures, one, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. No, 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 no. I always, I go back and I'll do an edit into it, but I need to know, tell me the story. I mean, I say edit, I should almost say I'll do a cut in, but you've been going through cuts for all your life. Let's start <laughs> off with that. Are we recording now? Oh, uh, we're always recording. Oh, okay. All right. So, um. Well, you want me to go into my story, you said. Oh, go right ahead. Go. That, that's, what, that's what we're here for. I think you have such an intriguing and interesting story. I mean, I saw the small clip about your book, but even before we get into the book, there's so much to the story, and it's such a rich, rich and detailed story that I would just love for you to cover it with the audience. Okay. Well, to start off, and I'll just give um, like a, a, a little peanut-sized version of the basic story. Uh, I was born with something called Holt Orem, H-O-L-T, Orem, like Utah. And uh, it's a syndrome. And it comes as a triad of birth defects. And those are nervous system, venal system, and the skeletal system. And in the skeletal system, that's where it first shows up, of course, when you're born. And you have, um, and I came with crooked thumbs. I actually don't have thumbs. They, I have um, four index fingers. Now, that could have been where my hands ended in a point in three fingers. It could have been where my wrist ended in a point. It could have been where my elbow wristed in a point. Um, but I had it with the thumbs, which is mild. But nobody knew what Holt Orem was then. I didn't, they didn't find Holt Orem until like the 70s or something around that area, I think. Um, the, the nervous system, I'm wired differently than most people. Uh, and that shows up sometimes in operations and things. I have what they call a cookie bite hearing loss from that. When I rub my eyes, they squeak and other odd little things like that. But the ones that they didn't know about at birth, and by the way, this this also had me have three minor operations the day I was born. So they've been cutting into me since the day I was born. 
Um, so when I was five, I was sickly. I was blue, you know, cyanotic. And uh, my mother was a nurse and she was running around doctor to doctor trying to get somebody to listen to her. She knew something was wrong. They didn't. She finally found a doctor who would listen. And um, they found out that I had an extremely enlarged heart. And what I really had was what they called back then a hole in the heart or ASD, atrial septum defect. Back in 1958, when I was diagnosed and had my first operation, the survival rate for ASD repair was 50%. And of course, it was major open heart surgery. That was the cutting edge surgery of the day. And uh, so my parents went in for that operation with me. And uh, when I came, when they did the operation, they found that I had two holes in my heart. And they couldn't repair them both at the same time because they didn't think I was strong enough. And they found a vein that was plumbed backwards. So they sent me home after repairing only one hole, hoping I would gain enough strength to have survived the second operation. Now, here's the real kicker. My parents had already been told I had maybe I had well under a year to live under the, when I had the first operation. And now they were telling my parents I had maybe a year to live um, for the second operation. And they waited a year. Uh, at the end but, of that, but, but, but hold on, let me ask a strange question here. What is your survival rate if they opt not to give you the surgery? If they say, "Okay, we're not going to do it," before they even find out about the second, the oh, second hole in your it's heart. Death. It's death. Okay. Yeah, it's a bad, it's a bad ending. <laughs> you know, it's the one I've been trying to avoid all my life, actually. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So then I went in for the second operation, and at that point in time, no one had lived through two. I was the first person in the world to live through two open heart repairs for ASD. And, um, you know, nobody, I got the last rites and all that stuff. And, uh, and how old are you when you're getting the last rites this first time? Six years old. Oh my. And it's really hysterical how parents and doctors are because, um, first of all, obviously I'm a Catholic, uh, you know, Italian Catholic. And, um, I've already gone to catechism and stuff. And, um, I already had my, uh, well, I've had some catechism and uh, any Catholic knows what last rites are. So your parents are trying to tell you everything is okay. And there you are getting last rites. So they can't hide that from you as much as they try to. And the fact that the priest was crying like a baby, giving them to me, didn't help. And what uh, kind of emotions are you going through at this time? I mean, I, this has to be, I mean, you're going into a second, you're going into a surgery again. So how much are you freaking out if you can remember, of course, the timeline? I remember this very well. I remember that my parents were being stoic. They weren't telling me the truth, but I was gleaning a lot from them, from their body language, from, you know, all that stuff, right? You know, children aren't given the credit they deserve for. I may not have known words, but I knew what they were doing. I knew, I, you know, you know, you just know. Um, I knew I was in a fight for my life. I knew it the first time. Um, and I just developed strategies on how to deal with it. I developed my first strategy in my first night in the hospital when I was in, when I was five, and that was dis I was disassociating, and uh, and I was still using that strategy when the priest was giving me the last rites. I was finding every excuse to giggle and laugh as he put the oils on me, and that was what made the priest lose it because I was acting like nothing was wrong and I couldn't allow anything to be wrong because in my head. I knew, even at the age of six, that if I allowed a crack in my foundation, I wouldn't survive. I don't know where I got that from, but I did. You knew, you knew exactly what I was going to ask you next. 
What was that? You already answered. I was like, how did you develop that? But if you don't, if you're not sure on how you did it, but hey, at least you know that it, that's the way to go about it. I could tell you this. I'm not like a Catholic Catholic in the least. I'm very spiritual, but I don't go to church. I think I'm more spiritual than most people who go to church are. I've always felt this connection. I've always felt this thing where something else was helping me all along. I call it divine intervention. Mm-hmm. And I feel like divine intervention was guiding me the, even even at that age. And I was just listening to it. Okay. So let, let so as you're going through this divine intervention and it's and it's leading you. So you're going through the process. We know you survived it because we're having the conversation now, but you come out of second surgery. What happens next? Well, I got I had the surgery and like it was groundbreaking. Like I said, I was the first one to live through it. Um, but the doctor said that maybe I'll make it to 10. I was six. And that's what my parents were told was they'd be lucky if I saw 10. They never told me that, but I knew that they were told something like that just from the way they acted. But my parents did something very smart. They insisted that I not act like a sick kid. I wasn't allowed to be sickly. I wasn't, I had to do everything every other kid did, even though I couldn't a lot of the times, but I had to do everything. And I think that was a very smart thing because that, that bolstered me to be able to fight it too. So when you look back at that and you even say that you have limitations physically at that particular time, did you, were you regretful to an extent or towards them for regards of them still continuing to push you when you even understood and they even understood that there were some limitations or or were you grateful looking at it now? Grateful as heck to it. Okay. Because at the time I would imagine it has to be extremely difficult. It was, but I wasn't allowed to to wallow in it and they wouldn't wallow it. And they just acted like I was normal. The one thing that it did kind of screw me up with, and it did because I was in, I was in the first grade in my second operation. And when I came out of that, I went from being in a, in a ward with children where you saw children leave and never come back. And they didn't come back because uh, they went to a different room. They didn't come back because they were never coming back. I saw, I saw children scream and cry and, and get taken down, get strapped to table, to gurneys and taken down the hallway, kicking and screaming. And I can still hear one kid in particular and, and another kid who I really, really love this little kid. And they never came back. And I went from the horror of the hospitals in the 50s, which they were. I mean, they're nothing like they are today. And children, I was in a ward. I was in a ward of 16 children. Uh, it's completely different today. And and I, I came back from the hospitals were extremely institutional and treating children like they were, you know, they didn't know any better. You could, you know, you didn't have to tell them anything. Nobody told you anything back in those days. Um, you were just left on your own devices. And I went from that hospital, re- that hospital reality, bam, into school, where nobody had, no one else had experienced what I had experienced. No one else had any idea what death was. No one else had watched people who were in the bed across from them never come back because they had died that day, or the person at the end of the hall, at the end of your row, who you who you who you loved as a, as a friend, not come back because they died that day. Um, and that reality switch was really, really difficult. 
Well, and let me ask about that, because at, at that age, in kindergarten and first grade, most kids are still talking about cartoons. You already have this interaction with death. I mean, that, exactly what happened when people that you know have passed away. How are your interactions at this time? Because it has to be, become such a difficult conversation, even at such a young age. Well, I never had the conversation. Nobody ever acknowledged it. But I'll, I'll tell you what it did do. It turned me into something that I'm very glad it did. Uh, you know, we're the sum of all our experiences, aren't we? Um, mm -hmm. And it, I think it helped push me to be such an entrepreneur. And I think it helped me be as independent I was, as I was. I became a television director. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I, I was always self-employed. Uh, it made me... It made me who I am in that way. And it also, in a lot of ways, made me not deal, not want to deal with certain people because I, I, a teacher would try to tell me something and I'd be like, the hell with you. You don't know half of what I know. I wouldn't listen to them. Because it had to make, I would imagine it had to make a few conversations extremely interesting for sure for them, especially once you get to tell them your story. Well, they didn't, it never was told. My parents would talk to them and then they'd never talk to me about it. It was really as if nothing ever happened. That is crazy. That's crazy in my mind as you, as you bring this up. So let me ask the strange question then. At what time do you find out then that you're not supposed to make it past the age of 10? I mean, if you don't know this at six, you pass the age of 10. At what point are you told in your life, hey, uh, you weren't supposed to make it back then? Well, I had a, an inkling that something was up because of the way my parents were reacting and everything, you know, just like I said, uh, you could glean. Mm -hmm. But um, then I changed, you know, I, as I got older, I, I started going to this doctor when I was about, um, I don't know, 14 or 15. And this doctor and I, he was a young guy and he and I just really hit it off and he never lied to me. And uh, my heart started to go out of control again. I, I started to get a, a severe arrhythmia. And my resting heart rate was 140. Oh, wow. And he he had really blunt talks with me. I loved this guy. And he'd say his name was Dr. Melvin Klein. And he would say, you, you, uh, your heart's in a flutter. He says, you, you know, this gets much worse. It's just going to explode on you. you. You know, you can't live like this. And he always wanted to put a pacemaker in me. I And I wouldn't accept it. Uh, but when I was in the last days of my 16th year, I went into a hospital to get a, a catheterization to see what was going on with my heart. Why was my heart so out of control? And uh, they they found that um, there was no disease process. There was no any kind of damage. So they decided to cardiovert me. I know, I know you know what that means, but for those of who don't, uh, it's doctor talk for we're going to electrocute you. And uh, I'll never forget this. I'm in the opera. I'm in the cath room. And the doctor comes to me, and this is really interesting because I was 16, just a few days short of 17, and the doctor asks my permission. They didn't ask my mother. They asked mine. And uh, as far as I know, they never left the room to ask my mother. And the doctor says to me, um, we have to cardiovert you, and that means we're going to put a plate on your back and a plate on your chest, and we're going to sh shoot you with electricity, and we're going to stop your heart. And the hope is that we give it a few seconds to rest and find itself again. They were hoping if it would reconnect with the heart rate center and, um, and we, we zap you again and bring you and, and start your heart up again. And then the doctor goes, of course, there's this slight, small chance that it won't start up again. That's the risk you have to take. So I'm laying on this table. What, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? You're going to say no. 
So yeah. uh, it, it, what I'm amazed about is that they're, you know, that they're interacting with you, with your parents there. And it's like, it's really your decision. So no, what do you, my, what my do you, par- th- my parents weren't there. It was me alone. Oh, they weren't there at all. Oh, no. Okay. I, it was just me in the operating room with them. Oh, wow. Okay. So then that's all of I, a sudden. That's what boom. I thought was amazing was that they were talking mm-hmm. to me, you know? Right. Oh, I thought you meant that they were talking to you, but they were still there. But no, 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 no. I'm totally misunderstood that then. I'm sorry. I wasn't clear, mm-hmm. but it, it's, um, no, it was just me in the operating room with the doctor, a doctor I'd never met before and, you know, who was really good with me. And and uh, I respected that he was that way with me. Uh, and But again, what are you going to do? Say no. But you of course re- not. Of right, course so, not. So, yeah. So, of, so I'm imagining you said yes, because we are here years le- later. So you go through that. What happens then? So they, well, they, they shock not- your heart. They knock you out to do that. They have to mm-hmm. knock you out to do that because you're awake during the cath, as you know. And, right. and uh, I wake up in a room next to a next to an EKG monitor, and um, and there's my heart rate at 84 from 140. So they put me on a medicine called quinidine, and which is supposed to help regulate your heart back then. That was a big, big, big medicine. Big big blockbuster new technology medicine back then. And uh, it turned out I was allergic to it. So on my 17th birthday, it gave me a heart block incident. It's, it electrically stopped my heart. And I had an out-of-body experience in the whole thing. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And that was my best birthday ever, actually. <laughs> I guess that's one way to put it. Well, it was. It really was. I got to see things and learn things and understand things. Uh you know, um, that cemented something for me. That okay. cemented that I'm that I'm mortal. That cemented that I was going to chase life with a hammer. That cemented that I was going to do what I want to do. And period. That's it. I'm doing what I want to do. I'm going to have the career I want. I'm going to have the woman I want. I'm going to have the life I want. And I don't care what anybody else says. That cemented that perfectly for me. Okay, so that cements that at the age of 17, a few moments ago, you spoke that you were able to become a director and so on. What, how many years are we talking down the road from 17 to when you really start going hardcore after what exactly you want? That day. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, first of all, I started living like a, I have to say that I was a, I was a director for a long time. Um, take from this what you will, but I didn't get married for a long time. I didn't get married until I was 37. Um, I was just chasing life with a hammer. I became a pilot. I was flying. I had my own glider. I had a camper out at the airport where I would spend as much time out there as I could with my airplane and um, with my friends who flew. Um, you so know, can, 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 can you almost say that you were living life to the fullest like it was the last day every day? Yeah. I didn't think of it that way, but that's what I was doing. Yeah, it becomes so you, such an ingrained it, part of me. I didn't have to think of it that way. It was just was the way it was. So you're living life to its fullest. You start going out down the career path that you want. You get the pilot's license and so on. Are you feeling happy with how your career is going? Are you, I mean, you start your own production company. I mean, yeah. and that, I mean, let's be realistic. There's a lot of work behind that. Oh, it was, t- it was a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, and, multi-award, and you, I'm a multi-award winning guy too. I mean, and you do it for almost 20 years on your, uh, as the owner and president of the company. So as you're, as you're doing this for all this period of time, how do you get involved into it? How do you decide this? Do you go to school or yeah. do you just say, I'm just going to wing it? Or how does it come about? 
I went to school. I, my, my mother, my parents had gotten divorced. My mother was broke and I, and I were broke. I paid for college. I paid for everything. I paid for everything. I, I started to work. I started working when I was 13. I, I have an extremely strong work ethic. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, my parents stopped giving me an allowance when I turned 13. If I wanted any money, I had to go out and earn it. Um, which was another great thing that they did. I had to buy my first car. I had to buy my telephone. I had to insure my car. I had to maintain my car. I had to put gas in my car. I had to pay for college. I had to pay for my books. All of that adds up to the best way you could raise a kid in my, in my eyes, because everything I owned was worth something to me. My $100 car that was rusted out, my first car, was, the, was like a Rolls Royce to me, because I owned it. I bought it. I mean, yeah, you earned the whole thing as you did everything for that. So you graduate from college, you start your own company, you start moving down. Now, how, how's the health at the time? How are things going in, in that arena? Not great. <laughs> because after I was 17, I was told that, okay, um, I wasn't supposed to get through past 10, but I got past uh, – 17 and, and that, but my, my doctor told me, you know, you know um, you'll be lucky if you make 30. This is The Jay Allen Show. Hey, have you ever wanted to hear what's going on around in the world of safety and you're not able to do so? Have you ever wanted to take a listen to what exactly is going around in the world of safety? What if we called that thing around the safety pod? We told you month over month. What is happening in the mix? Would you care to know? What would it be worth to you? Now, here's the fun part. Besides that you can find out exactly what's going on inside of the world of safety, there's also other information available there. Stuff that you can start using as early as today. How about you give us a look? Go to our website, safetyfmplus.com. That's safetyfmplus.com to find out what exactly is going on inside of the world of safety, around the world of safety, and inside of the world of safety. And don't forget to tell them that Jay Allen sent you. I'll see you on the other side. Make sure to join the revolution. And we are back on the Jay Allen Show on Safety FM. I, I, these doctors are not, you know, they're they're always against you. It sounds like they're always giving you odds that you don't want to hear. And it sounds like you want to continuously prove them wrong. And you have a, a pretty big reason to. Yeah, so, I, I think so that that's a new, So 30 is a new number now. So then all of a sudden you're thinking, okay. So I now, didn't think, I now, didn't think I'd make 30. I never thought I'd get to 30. Neither did any of my friends. But I was going to so, still live life out the way I wanted. But when you start looking at this and you hear this, let's let's have the honest conversation for a moment of how do you look at it? Are you doing the countdown? Are you, I mean, let's just be realistic. Is it, are you looking at it almost like a death clock? Like, hey, this is how much time I have before I'm 30. No, I, I yes and no. Because again, again, I go back into that thing where um, I deny it okay. to, to an extent and I'm just going to live my life and, and, you know, is part of me that thinks I can make myself live past it if you get my drift. Mm -hmm. And and that's just what I did. I just, I wasn't, you know, because if I was counting down the clock, it would make me stop, stop doing things, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Now, the other, the interesting part or that you mentioned earlier is you didn't get married until you're 37. So you wanted to go seven years past to make sure that it was actually going to work. <laughs> well, no, something happened in, in the meantime when I was, um, when I was 
30, almost 34, I went back to my doctor and we had my EKG and I'll never forget this in my whole life. And he's staring at my EKG, just staring at the strip. And I'm sitting there, the way he's staring at the strip just has me like, uh-oh. And he turns to me and he says, I don't, this is a quote. He said, I don't know how you did it, but your EKG is indistinguishable from any normal person's. He goes, you did it. You beat it. Go out and live. And I bought on my birthday, which was the 17th anniversary of my almost dying when I was 17, I bought an airplane that day on, the, on my birthday, on the 34th birthday. So hold on. I mean, the birth, uh, how do you beat it? Like he, that's incomprehensible to an extent. I think I just willed myself. I am a big believer. And, you know, I'm trying to start a movement between doctors and and patients and Mm -hmm. I want everybody to understand each other. And I think uh, patients and doctors both don't understand enough how much healing is up to the patient. A lot of people confuse the idea that the doctor does the healing. You go to the doctor for him to cure you or her to cure you. Most of my doctors are female, so I should say she. Um, but um, that's, that's a big misunderstanding with a lot of doctors and a lot of patients. You know, I, I say this line when I speak to doctors uh, at hospitals. I say, um, a patient comes to you and they say, doctor, I'm sick. And the doctor says, yeah, you're right. you're, you are sick. And, you, and the patient says, can you cure me? Can you heal me? And the doctor says, yes, I can. Who's wrong in that conversation, Jay? That's the, that's the great question because the I, I always go back to that movie Malice. Do you remember that older movie? Are you familiar with it? I am, yes. And, and he uses that line where he says that he's essentially a god because people put their life in their hands. So I always think about that, which is a terrible question to ask people. Um, I think that the doctor's wrong in it, if I'm being honest here. They're both wrong. And is that what is that when you start thinking right there on that spot of just, grateful guilt? I mean, do you start thinking about it that early in? Oh, I'm, yeah, yeah. I saw. I thought I was thinking about how much the patient is invo- involved early, early in. See, it's this is the thing, doctors. And believe me, I owe my life to doctors. How do you think I think about doctors? I mean, you can only think I think about doctors one way, right? I mean, I revere doctors. I love my doctors. Doctors saved my life, but. They did, you know, like when you buy a bottle of bacitration, it says it promotes healing. It doesn't heal, it promotes it. And that's what doctors do and nurses and hospitals. They promote healing. The patient does the healing. If I'm in a car. So, so, so you almost are saying then that we look at healing incorrectly inside of the way that the Western society and the Western world looks at stuff. I, yeah, I guess, I guess you could call that to, more towards an Eastern medicine thing, but I don't think of mm-hmm. it as that Eastern or Western. I just think of it's correct that it's the patient that does the healing. Okay. So where do you, where does medication follow, follow along in those lines from your point of view? Medicine, medicine, doctors, operations, hospitals promote healing. The patient okay. is the one that does the healing. So if I'm in a horrible car accident and, and, and doctors put me back together again and they do everything properly, I could still die if my will isn't there. Isn't it true? If I'm not going to, right. Mm-hmm. If I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to live. Right. That's normally how it ends up working. Right. So that means that the patient has to understand that their responsibility in, in being the patient is that they have to, they have to be the ones fighting and healing. 
And that's well, I mean, I almost look at this as, as we're having this conversation that there is some gamification then based on how you're saying this in regards of healing. And I, and believe me, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take it as you're, you know, you're a revered expert at this because you've of everything you've been through. So I'm taking your word to what you're saying, but there is some gamification based on how you're describing it. The, what do you mean by that? I want to make sure I understand your meaning. So when, what I'm saying here is that you have to play your part. You have to do oh. your part. So you're... So imagine like if you're controlling an avatar, does that make sense? So like if you're playing a video game, you, you have to do certain things to be able to, to proceed and get better. It's yep. almost the same, it's the same concept. Yep. It is the, the patient is the one who gets better. The doctors can do everything they can, everything they've studied and learned and all their experience, and they can do everything they do and they can do everything a hundred percent right. And the patient can run it all. So let me ask this because you know that when you start talking to people about this, some people are going to give you the, you know, the strange look of, uh, that's a little, you know, little strange, a little strange for me. How do you justify it from your point of view? How do you tell them that it worked? I mean, and let's, let's use your experience here. How do you let people know that it works and what they, what methods can they use? Well, that's what, what's part of what grateful guilt is. I use Grateful guilt is an excuse for me to write my strategies through my story and, and to give people the idea that they should never even go into a doctor's office without strategies. You, you certainly don't get me going into a hospital without strategies, but I'll go into a doctor's office with strategies. And patients have a lot of things that they can do. Um, the number one thing, and it's really funny because um, patients and doctors have responsibilities towards each other. And a lot of times, neither side is is really being responsible the way they should be fully enough. So uh, patients have to understand that they can't be jerks. But doctors also have to understand that they can't be jerks. And I use these words deliberately because I tell you, I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals. I mean, my last heart transplant I was in for 67 days. I Hold saw, on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up. Did you just say your last heart transplant? So has there been more than one? Yes. I've had two. Oh, my. My chest has had three different hearts. <laughs> Which is and you funny. chuckle at that. I do. Oh, wow. 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 But humor is the best medicine. Sorry for interrupting. Please continue. No, it's that it's, I'm just saying that, you know. Uh, I've seen patients be monster jerks to doctors and, and, and staff. I, it's unbelievable how bad they can be. But I've also seen, seen doctors be monster jerks. And that's my number one rule in a hospital. Don't be a jerk. Whether you're a doctor or a patient, don't be a jerk. A patient should be, a patient should be the kind of person who every single person in the hospital, down from down from the hospitality staff, the, the custodial staff, to the, the chief of whatever department you're in, would should want to come into your room. They should want to be next to you. They should want to be interacting with you because you're so pleasant, because you're so whatever it is that makes you want them to be there. That's the number one thing a patient has to do. So you should be a model patient is what you're saying. Yeah, but you should be, mm -hmm. you should be funny. You should be polite. You should thank everybody. You should be grateful. All those things are your, as a patient's responsibility. By the way, the more grateful you are, the quicker you heal. <clears throat> Doctors, on the other hand, can't, can't be jerks. They can't be arrogant. They can't be unfriendly. They can't be all the things that we know that way. And 
I'm sure you know about this. I've drilled down into this, but you know, when you look at doctors getting lawsuits, it seems like the same doctors get most of the lawsuits. That's what the numbers tell us, right? Right. So we know that. So what would you think that means? That means that doctor's being a jerk. Let's just say it plainly. So if you want to avoid lawsuits, be be more respectful of your patients. Don't be that arrogant guy or that arrogant woman. Because I'm using this word deliberately too. We have all met doctors, both sexes, who who are arrogant and who deserve to be slapped. And how patients slap them is with a lawsuit. They slap them with a lawsuit, using that term. And if doctors want to bring down the lawsuits, they should be interacting with their patients more as a person and not on, not as a on high deity. So let me ask the question then, because you are mentioning lawsuits quite often here. So I want to, I want to kind of cover this real quick. So let's say for instance, somebody came in and said, let's talk about some of these strategies that can be applied for you to heal quicker. And let's say for instance, that some of the strategies that you're referencing right now are the ones that are brought up and the patient does not heal as quick as the patient believes they should. Do you think that the doctor would get slapped with a lawsuit because of that? I'll tell you this. I, I got sepsis. Of, I was when I went for my first heart, my second heart transplant in California. Uh, the first thing they did is they give you a, an IV, right? It's the first thing they give you. I got sepsis from that IV. It almost killed me. Four days later, I was fighting for my life. My wife is a, is a cancer nurse, and she's screaming at the doctor. She didn't think I could understand. I heard everything. That uh, she, When you hear a 36-year nurse scream, do something, we're losing him. <laughs> that gets mm-hmm. your attention. Um, I had 104.5 fever that night, and none of the doctors, and I was, and I was in deep, uh, I was in deep cardiac trouble. I was waiting for my second transplant. And, uh, I was in deep heart failure is what I meant to say. And nobody thought I was going to pull through that night. I knew I would. I did. I knew. But nobody else thought that. Uh, But it was from that IV. And we know it was from that IV. Now, I saw that nurse give me that IV. I saw her do everything right. she, She swabbed the area. She injected the area. She swabbed. She did the right amount of count. She did everything right. But somehow... So either something brushed me that neither of us saw, or there was something wrong with the the needle in the package. I don't know what it was. Nobody knows what it was. But the doctor, the cardiologist came into my room my first day that I was really lucid and I was out of trouble. And, uh, And I said to him, I have a real lawsuit here, don't I? And he kind of shook his head and went, yeah, you do. I said, well, I watched her give me that IV. She didn't do anything wrong. So... I can't in good conscience sue you because I'm not going to because she didn't do anything wrong that I could see. There was nothing, you know, nothing that I should sue you for. So I'll make a deal with you. All the time that I have to spend here that and all the because I it put me off my transplant by weeks. I said, um, all this time that we got the medicine and all the intervention for the for the for the infection, I said. The hospital's going to cover, not my insurance company. That's going to be our deal. I'm not going to sell you if you don't put this on my insurance company. And he agreed. Understandably so. Right. But I didn't think they deserved to be sued. Now, 
I really liked this doctor. I liked that nurse. That had a huge impact on whether or not I was going to sue them. Frankly, I wouldn't have sued them if I didn't like them because I didn't think it deserved to be there was I didn't think there was I didn't think I saw any negligence. So I in good conscience couldn't have. I really couldn't. So do you, so, so do you think most people would follow your same pattern then? Is that what you're saying? Yes, my, exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that patients who like doctors don't sue them. The fact that the same doctors get most of the lawsuits tells you that there's something with those particular doctors that makes them so suable. Got it. So let me ask a couple of other questions here, if you don't mind. It sounds like some of the strategies that you use for healing techniques have been some of the strategies that you've applied to your career. Am I looking at that the wrong way? And I'm not talking so much from a healing aspect, but the mental model shift on going forward and how making things happen for you. Is that an accurate statement or an inaccurate statement? I guess it's pretty accurate. Yeah. And where right. do you feel? And where do you feel that you've been more successful? Do you feel that you've been more successful from the being the patient standpoint, or are you looking at it more from the from the things that you've been able to accomplish? Because, as you said earlier, you have always worked for yourself. It hasn't been that you've worked for somebody else. Right, I've always worked for myself. I've never worked for anybody. Um, I mean, except when I was a kid and was getting jobs, you know. But um, once I graduated, I don't think that can count. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Once I graduated college, I never worked for anybody but me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, it, it, it all goes back to that whole thing about you only get this one life. It's short. Make the most of it. That's really the big driver in my life. Uh, my work ethic just makes me work harder at that. Uh, you know, uh, I think that that's really what, what does it. I mean, I, I just always, um, been one who likes to, to do things as well as I can do them. I always strive for my own excellence. So right now you wrote this book, what, close to two years ago from what I can, from what I can gather, correct? Yeah, about that. Yeah. So, and the audio, is there, the audio it, book is it, coming out this week. Oh, okay. Very good. Very good. Is there a continue? Is, will you be doing a continuation to the book? Is there, are you doing revisions or what, what are you thinking about doing next? Well, I mean, cause my, my, I, I see that you, I see that you've been able to speak on it. So what's next with it? Well, I'm, I'm actually really thinking of starting a podcast about okay. this whole patient uh, doctor thing. I'm basically for the patients and what they should do and, you know, strategies that they can use going into the hospital. Cause um, I've had when people are going to the hospital, I've had people come to me and they tell me things and I, 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 I almost yell at them because they're being such dopes because they're being jerks. They're, they're going back to that word. Uh, and um, as you can tell, I'm a very direct guy. In television, there's no room for um, politeness. So I've, I've got <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, I mean, I still have that, tele- that television ethos that uh, you, you say things directly because there's no time to be otherwise. Um, but uh, – I have had more people come back to me and say, I listened to what you said and I did what you said in the hospital and, and, and darn Stephen, it worked. I can't believe how much what you told me worked. So I think that, um, that makes me think that if I did a podcast of some kinds or something like that, that I could really help a lot of people. That's really what my aim is at this point in my life. I'm 67 years old, close to 68. Um, I wanted, you know, the book was written for the same reason. I thought it could help a lot of people. I use my story, but my story is the analogy to get out the the, the points. And um, and it is a fascinating story. I mean, it is. And it's in the fact that uh, I am the first person in the world to live through two. I did to have two, 
two um, heart transplants. I've had four open heart surgeries. I've been told I have a year to live three times to my face, twice to my parents. So um, it's a fascinating story. I, I like to think it's funny. It's a good book. I, I've been told it's a good read. It's a five star on Amazon. It was an Amazon bestseller. I'm very proud of the book. I mean, I was a writer in television too. I, I've been a writer all my life. Um, so having a well-written book behind me is something I'm, I'm very proud of. My doctor. No, I, I, I'm sorry, I mean, I had, to tell, I had to tell you review wise, you have great reviews according to what they say online about the book. Um, I mean, it look it looks fantastic. Uh, so you're saying that this week, so by the time that this podcast will come out or this episode, your, your audio book will be available. Now, now that is going to be available on audible. Yes, I'm hoping so. I mean, I don't know what the holdup was. I thought it would be out like a week or two ago, but it's still not okay. out. So uh, I'm dealing, you know, my my consultant is telling me she's working on it. I don't know what's going on exactly. I'm sorry. Um, that's annoying to me. But, you know, it'll be out within the next week or two. I can't be if it's beyond two weeks, um, somebody's going to hear about it. <laughs> so let me ask you, how do you come up with the concept of puppy duck production? Like, where does that come about? I mean, I you had you had your own company under your own name. Yes. And then all of a sudden you changed it a few years later. Why did you decide to, to do, to do mm -hmm, the puppy, puppy duck? duck? Because mm -hmm. I had a German shepherd named Juanita, who was something, a, a dog I adored. And I used to call her puppy duck. And I always promised myself that one day I would name something after her. So I named it after her. That's, that's oh, really nice. after my, that's why there's a German shepherd as the logo. Okay. That makes sense then. Because I was like, Puppy Duck sounds like a very interesting name. So I knew there had to be a, a, a pretty different story inside of there. And that's for sure. That to, there I is. used to do this thing with her where I I sang a song about, I, I made up a song for Puppy Duck for her. And she used to dance to it. And just, you know, just having that as a memory for her. That's why I did it. Very nice. Now, Stephen, if the audience wants to know more about you and your book, where can they go to find out more information? Well, my website is down at the moment, but it's it's going to be at Stephen G. Taibbi. Um, the Grateful Guilt website is up, but it's not. Uh, I, I'm very bad at that stuff, to be honest with you. Uh, most of the people go to my author page on Facebook, and um, the book is available. Barnes and Noble has it. I've been told um, it's on all the book selling places on the web, and the and the audio book is coming out on Audible. So. Uh, the website situation is going to be completely redone soon. Okay. Well, Stephen, I really do appreciate you coming on to the show today. Well, I really appreciate you having me. I really do, Jay. Thank you so much. So there you go. That is the interview with Stephen Taibbi. Man, what a story does he have to share? Now, if you want to find out more information about him, like he did say, you can go to his website. Also, pick up his book, Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart, a true story. And this will bring another episode of The Jay Allen Show to an end. You have been listening to The Jay Allen Show exclusively on Safety FM, home of Real Safety Talk. Thank you for always being the best part of Safety FM. And that is The Listener. Don't worry, we'll be back with another episode of The Jay Allen Show before too long. Goodbye for now. Want more of The Jay Allen Show? Go to safetyfm.com.
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.